How's it going, Mets fans? Thank you guys all so much for chiming in for the latest episode, episode four now of the Believe in Queens podcast, presented from the Believe Network. Myself, Tyler Ward, as many of you guys know me here on YouTube, if you're watching this on the YouTube forum, or NYM, the largest Mets platform, not directly affiliated with the Mets or SNY, with my beloved co-host, as always, Joe Serralo, a national podcast podcaster that you can check his weekly podcast out with the Joe Serralo podcast, interviewing interacting with so many different sports athletes and having a great time doing it. We have so much to deep dive today, however, folks, in today's pod. As you see, if you're watching on YouTube, we have a laundry list of topics that is first highlighted by the Mets series victory, winning two games of three against the Cincinnati Reds. We'll be deep diving the good, the bad, the ugly from that series, along with Mad Max Scherzer's brilliant start that was unfortunately wasted by this Mets offense. We're looking at positives, too. Miami Marlins, a four-game set starting tonight at the time that you guys listening or watching this one. Some key updates for Jacob deGrom, top prospect Francisco Alvarez, and deep diving some potential DH targets for the New York Mets reportedly, and very much could be reports going forward, and that is, in for- of course, headlined by, yes, Trey Mancini and so much more. Very pumped up, so much a deep dive here, and all I got to say is, Joe, how are you doing tonight, my man? It's uh, it's been a night, that's for sure. So for for those of you who don't know this, or don't who don't who don't realize this, uh, right now as we record, it is about 1:45 on the East Coast where Tyler's at. So Tyler, man, you're a trooper. Um, out in LA where I am, it's 10:45 right now. And I thought, you know, Tyler, of course, after the Reds game wrapped up, after that great comeback by the Mets, I thought, well, Tyler's gonna go live, do his thing for an hour or so. So let me capitalize on this, right? Let me go for a run, come back, shower up, be fresh, ready to go. Instead, I got like, you know, sweat shine on my forehead right now. And and I'm just a mess. And here's what happened. So I'm new to LA, moved out here in April. And every time I go for a run, I like to maybe, you know, try to find a new neighborhood, a new part of town, you know, discover something, right? Spice it up. So I go for a run and I do about three miles. I'm ready to turn around. And I realize I'm in a part of town I probably shouldn't be in right now. The sun's going down. It's getting a little sketchy, a little dicey. So I'm out by like Pico and Barrington. I cut up Olympic and I'm like, all right, you know what? I've got that old man pride to me, uh, that boomer generation thing where like, I don't like to ask for directions. I don't even like to use my GPS. I'm like, oh, you're one of those. I am one of those. Yeah. I'm like, I got here. I'm going to get my ass back. So I'm like, all right, I just, you know, I'm Southwest of where I live. I just got to cut up North, go East a little bit. And I'm great. I'm looking for a main road. I'm jogging north. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> I end up at the Fox Studios. And I'm like, this is this is not the right spot. Well, the road I was looking for ended at a certain point where, where I was jogging. It ended before that point that I was at. So that road didn't exist that I was looking for. So now, instead of being, you know, three miles away southwest, where I was like, all right, it'll be a nice five and a half, six mile run. Now I'm three and a half miles northwest of where I need to go. And that hour jog that I was going to do while you were ranting about, you know, or celebrating rather, that great comeback Mets win, that hour long jog turned into a two and a half hour excursion, a mix of probably like running five and a half, six miles, walking the other three, three and a half. Um, Yeah, it was almost a 10 mile, two and a half hour excursion that I just did not plan on going on tonight that I didn't want to go on tonight. But here we are. I've got some energy. I'm ready to go. And I do want to remind everyone that this episode of Believe in Queens is brought to you by our proud partners at BetOnline. BetOnline is your source for all the lines on Wimbledon, of course, on the MLB, and even on NFL futures as that starts to approach. We're about two months away 
from kickoff for the NFL season. So go to Bet Online, use your promo code Believe. That's Believe B L E A V for your fifty percent welcome bonus, and let the games begin. Well, I love your story because my biggest takeaway from that for you going forward is like expect the unexpected, right? And I think that's a great pivot into what had tr- just transpired in tonight's win for the Mets as truly it was expect the unexpected as if you followed the entire game all the way through the ninth inning, you would have thought that the Mets, this is going to be another game where you're going to see me ranting after that Scherzer loss the night before where again, not taking enough advantage of the opportunities given you with runners to scoring position. No less things turn on their head, and the Mets had one of their most magical comebacks that we have seen in quite some time. And talk about a momentum swing for this team. And don't get me wrong, by no means is this a team where I think that everything is pitcher perfect right now. They have some clear issues on the offensive front, on the bullpen front, but there were definitely highlights to take from this series victory overall. So, Joe, let's just deep dive right into it, right? I know we just talked briefly on the series win, but let's talk about how we got there because this was a series for the Mets against these Reds where you look at this matchup and I was personally hoping for a sweep. Now I'm very happy and satisfied that they got the series victory in the end, but this was still something where naturally against a bottom feeder in the Reds, you have high expectations. This is the Mets second best month schedule wise of all the season. And naturally you want them to get off on the right foot after a series victory this past weekend or the Texas Rangers. And thankfully in game one, Coincidentally enough, it's, of course, that being July 4th, 7-4 is a date, and 7-4 is your final as the Mets win 7-4. So before we deep dive some further numbers, Joe, what was your initial reaction to this Game 1 victory in Cincinnati? Right, so I'll take it game by game here. Game 1 went exactly how I expected Game 1 or almost any Met game in Cincinnati to go. Offensive fireworks, great pitcher in Taiwan Walker, uh, Walker even got touched up a little bit. He gave up a three-run shot. Thankfully, that was it, and that really shows you, you know, Some people are like, ah, here we go with Walker. That was, what, the third home run, maybe the fourth he's given up this entire season. It's Great American Ballpark, right? Anyone's going to give up home runs at Great American Ballpark. So that was exactly how I expected it to go. Walker got touched up a little bit. Hunter Green got touched up way worse. It was a great win. Got the Mets to, what, 3-1 and in the month of July. Game two was really discouraging. Now, I'm not with you alarmist Met fans. If any of you are out there watching this, you know, Lately, oh, they're watching. Had, they're watching. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, like to make that clear. <laughs> lately, we've we've had too many people. You know, it's like the Mets lose a game, and ah, season's over. Same old Mets. You know, don't forget going into tonight's uh, finale against the Reds. The season was exactly halfway over, and the Mets were on pace to go 162. So I, I don't want to deal with the alarmist Mets fans. I will say that loss in Cincinnati, Game Two of the series, that's the worst loss of the season. Max Scherzer comes out with one of the gutsiest. Toughest performances of the season by any Met. Six innings, 11 Ks. And and please don't be saying, well, he only had 79 pitches. Why didn't he go out there? It was his first start back. Struck out 11 guys in six innings. I think we would have been happy with, you know, five innings of maybe one or two run balls for a start back. We got six scoreless. The offense was just anemic. And when you have that kind of pitching performance from Scherzer, and then the bullpen comes in and all the way up until the ninth inning holds it down, you know, Seth Lugo, Tyler, we got our wish. We got Chase and Shreve off the team. And I'm, I'm not saying that about Seth Lugo just yet. I also really love Seth Lugo. But Seth Lugo, I got to give my uncle credit on this one. He, he brought up the comparison to me yesterday. My uncle moved from New York to Cincinnati. So he was at the game with my cousin. Oh, and wow. he said, Seth Lugo is the new Bobby Parnell. He had no. it for a long time. And he just doesn't anymore. And I was like, damn. I was like, he might, he might be spot on with that. 
He might be um, cooking up something here, huh? Yeah, I mean, Lugo just doesn't have it. He just hasn't had it all year. Didn't really have it last year. So Lugo concerns me, but let, let's let's be very clear. That game two loss was entirely in the offense. Scherzer had an amazing, incredible, gutsy performance. That was the worst loss of the season. So I was starting to get a little concerned when the Mets were losing 3-2 going into the ninth inning tonight. I, I was finally starting to be a little alarmed because, holy crap, this team's had so much success, even in bad years at Great American Ballpark in our lifetimes. And here they are, and they're about to drop two out of three. When they're on pace for 100 wins, they're about to drop two out of three to the Reds. Tyler, I was very concerned. But then we saw the Mets that were down 2 nothing against the Cardinals earlier this year with two outs in the ninth and came back to win. The Mets that were down 7-1 to the Phillies this year in the ninth inning and came back to win. Those Mets came out tonight, loved, first off, tying the game, obviously, in the ninth, but in the top of the tenth, loved Escobar going at, uh, what was it, uh, Moreta, the pitcher for Cincinnati. Yeah. Loved Escobar getting feisty. Loved the Mets' response, because Escobar, you know, don't forget, that at-bat ended in a flyout. But I loved the rest of the team, the way that they responded. Nimmo with the dinger to seal the deal on it. And then Diaz comes in. And I mean, what's this guy averaging? 27 Ks per nine right now? Oh, not a big deal. (laughs) Yeah, he's better than Josh Hader, guys. I'm sorry. Josh Hader, by the way, got touched up today. Got the loss in the Milwaukee uh, Cubs game today. Edwin Diaz is the best closer in the National League. So make no mistakes about that one. Okay, so I'm, I'm really happy that you went through all three games quickly. And I'll do the same because to really, in my personal opinion, when you look at game one, right, going back there for a second and why that was so important for the Mets is getting off of the right foot against, again, a bottom feeder in Cincinnati and in Great American, this has been a batter's box. This season, especially if you look at the numbers through Baseball Savant and others, this has been the easiest ballpark in all baseball to hit in. It has even been better than Coors Field. That is not an exaggeration, folks. That is, in fact, a fact. And for the Mets to jump on, Thanks to Brandon Nimmo, who was by all means one of the three stars of this series, not having one but two three-run bombs, the first one coming in game one that we saw to give the Mets the early lead. They lost to Brandon Drury, the former friend, now foe, hopefully friend again by the trade deadline. We'll discuss him later on the show as we get to DH targets revolved around Trey Mancini rumors and others. But you saw Francisco Lindor, who had that brutal play, not an error, but really looked like an error there that led to that Drury home run. He makes up for it for a bomb himself. Lindor was one of many Mets, however, in this series that outside this game one victory really struggled. He won over, he won over nine in his next two games for the Mets. And I understand in game two against Lodolo, who was a no name, who had an inflated ear ray, Southpaw. I don't expect Lindor to do well, which sucks to say. That's how I felt about Alonzo as well, that I ranted about on my YouTube channel and the Mets losing one nothing in game two. But naturally, if you look all season long for guys like Lindor, guys like Alonzo and others, they just have not been good against lefties, especially no-name lefties. And Lindor has been such a Jekyll and Hyde hitter this year, depending on which side of the plate he's been batting from. I'm not sure what the reason is. Now, naturally, he's more of a lefty batter than he is a righty, so that's a factor for sure. But it's still been frustrating to see, and I need to see Lindor off to a better foot here in this Miami series than eventually that pivotal three-game set starting Monday in Atlanta against those Braves. But you had some standouts in this series, too, from game one. I mean, you saw McKitts two for five with a run scored. Eduardo Espar one for five with an RBI, just tacking on to the Mets lead there in the latter half of that one. Mark Hanna one for three with two runs scored. Dom Smith. Dom, another guy that really stepped up in this three-game set. That is not going to get nearly enough credit that he rightfully deserves. One for four with a crucial two. Uh, had himself a double, but two RBIs in that one, which was massive. 
Colin Holderman, we talked about it in our last podcast, Joe. We unfortunately weren't able to record after the uh, Rangers series because we were busy with the holiday weekend. But prior to that, our last episode emphasized how the Mets need to make bullpen changes. And it was highlighted by Jason Shreve. He needs to be DFA'd. What happens a couple days later? He gets DFA'd. Colin Holderman's back in the bullpen. He's been a stud. He has now pitched over three scoreless innings for the Mets since being back called up in this bullpen. You love him. I love him. I want to see as much as Holderman as humanly possible. Even when he hasn't been perfect, he's been able to get out of innings unscathed with some awesome, and I truly mean awesome, strikeout stuff with the fastball and the slider. That one-two punch has been great. But game one, Lugo looks strong there in the ninth. However, game two for the Mets, 0-8 were runners in scoring position. In case you don't know, Joe, the Mets have been one of the worst teams in all baseball with runners in scoring position for right around a month now. So this is something that's been going on for a bit, even with their tough schedule in June aside. This is something that needs to be better. We expect it to, and I fully know it will be. But will it not drastically change until, I don't know, they make some moves externally or internally? I'm not sure. And that's something that we will definitely be discussing shortly because that game two loss, I agree with you wholeheartedly. You can definitely make the argument that that was the worst loss of the year. For Mad Max to come out, <laughs> 11 strikeouts. He, literally he was had, unreal. He has a 0.27 year array and four starts at Great American. You know how difficult that is? And that's the only pitcher in the history of the world, man, who's who's that good at Great American Ballpark. I I don't understand it. It, It's the biggest, or I should say the smallest band box in the league. I I mean, you know, like you said, it's more of a hitter's park than even Coors Field. So for Scherzer to have that amount of sustained success, I know it's only four starts, but that's still remarkable to have that low of an ERA in four. I, I mean, what, what is that? And for like, how many runs is he allowed in four start one run? He's allowed starts? one run and he has 53 strikeouts and just over 50 innings. <laughs> I mean, the guy is, the guy is incredible. By the way, didn't he also move into 18th in the all-time strikeout list uh, in that game in game? Two? I, I thought it was 14th, but I could have been wrong. I'm not good with my numbers. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a content creator and not a mathematician for a reason. <laughs> you and me both. I think he passed John Smoltz for 18th yes, all time. So yep. I mean, Scherzer is incredible, but you talk about his gutsy performance and, you know, obviously look, I love Colin Holderman and I'm glad you brought up Holderman to me. Colin Holderman's like cowbell. I just need more of it. But Adonis Medina preach, preach. He had, I emphasized that this he had, when he was done, I was like, if the Mets go anywhere tonight, you have Adonis yeah. Medina to thank. Yeah. Here right after Max Scherzer, Medina had the next gutsiest performance of the series because he came in. Peterson just didn't have his stuff. Now, look, Tyler, I, I know that you saw this. I give out my best bets every day on Twitter at the Joe Serralo, and I gave Peterson over four and a half strikeouts as a lock of the century. Little did I know he'd go over that mark. He'd prove me right, but he'd only last three and two thirds, which is also kind of remarkable because seven out of what, 11 outs ended up being strikeouts, but he walked the farm. I think he had five walks as well, gave up three, and it could have been just the night that went to shit from the start, right? Bullpen in the fourth inning was not what we expected with how amazing Peterson's been lately. But in comes Adonis Medina, and he just shut the door on Cincinnati. I believe three out of his first four outs were strikeouts. What did he go? Two and a third for us, or, or two he, innings? He went, and I think he went exactly three strong, one hit, three one innings. walk, four yeah. strikeouts. I mean, he he was sensational. He was gutsy, sensational. Look, if you take away Adonis Medina's one awful performance at Coors Field, where I think he got touched up for five earned runs in that appearance. His ERA is 0.95 on the season. So if you look at it as a whole, it's three even, I believe. Yeah. But take away that one bad outing he had at Coors Field of all places, and it's a 0.95 ERA in his other outings combined. This is a guy who's earned a spot on this roster. And just like Colin Holderman, Medina and Holderman right now, they're more reliable than Drew Smith and Seth Lugo. And I love Drew Smith and I love Seth Lugo. 
I'd rather see Medina and Holderman in a big situation right now, leading into Adovino and Diaz as they did perfectly tonight. Yeah, and I think that's a great way of putting it because it's for Buck and for the Mets, what we have noticed is what's important is riding the hot hand, right? Mm -hmm. Especially when you look at Lugo, what has been his biggest issue this year? It's trying to pitch him back-to-back days. And that's not just for this season, but that's been in some years prior. Lugo, again, no problem there in game one. But in game two, the man literally walks the bases juiced. And at that point, you know that you're the likelihood of the Mets trying to win without giving up a walk-off was slim to none. And don't get me wrong, the Mets offense is the reason to blame and the reason to blame only, first and foremost, from that game two loss to the Reds and one nothing. However, Lugo, his inconsistencies, to be that drastic, to be that erratic as a pitcher is something that needs to be combated. And it just leads me to the belief further that guys like the Medinas, like the Holdermans of the world, deserve not just one more of a leash, but two, we could see ourselves in a spot where maybe the Mets do have some crucial decisions as we get closer to the trade deadline and addressing this bullpen. Do I yeah. trust Seth Lugo to be this shutdown setup guy? No. Trevor May, what is he going to bring when he returns? Because he's going to be set to pitching off the mound soon. I have no clue, but these aren't certainties. But what has been certainties as of late is exactly what you said. Colin, Colin Holderman, Adonis Medina, and Adam Adovino, who was not available in game two, Buck said post-game, because we were wondering why wouldn't <sighs> Adovino be in there outside yeah. of facing a couple of lefties there in the ninth. Him tonight, absolutely massive for the Mets in this it series victory, getting two strikeouts, zero hits, zero earned runs, zero walks, absolutely flawless for the Mets, and that was the setup man for Diaz, of course. But when we break down a little bit further here on what was so big about the Mets tonight in this, uh, at the time recording this at least, was one, let's not brush it aside. The Mets still have issues, okay? The fact that they got this close to losing the series in Cincinnati against these bottom fear Reds is a red flag in itself. Yeah. However, what was massive is this momentum swing, and it's the thanks of Brandon Nimmo, among others. For Nimmo to get on base there with only one out in the ninth, for, then for Starling Marte to get a double, that really wasn't a double, but we're going to call it a double because thankfully the Reds were on our side with that call at third base. The man who had terrible calls with check swings that we saw in that game to begin with, no less, that gets the Mets the run to tie it. Alonzo, who went four for five in this one, unfortunately popped up there. Lindor had a brutal game as well. But the Mets, Alonzo was that one bright spot offensively throughout the game. Thankfully, they were able to tie it. And as we get to the 10th, Five runs. That was a St. Louis Cardinals game all over again. That's how it felt in that ninth inning, right? To not just have the likes of Dom Smith coming up absolutely clutch to give the Mets the lead there. Dom, again, who had multiple RBIs tonight, who is one of my top three stars from the series wholeheartedly. James McCann with a pinch hit single after Luis Gourmet was purposely intentionally walked by the Reds, thinking, you know what? We got guys on first and second, less than two out here in the 10th. We're going to bet on the likelihood of McCann striking out or getting into a double play, which is something that he's famously done all year long. However, he barrels the ball nicely, gets an RBI base knock to give the Mets the 5-3 lead, and then the icing on the kick, the cherry on top, if you will, Brandon Nemo for the second time this series with that three-run absolute piss missile. No doubt there for Brandon to write, yeah. and that gives the Mets the 8-3 lead, the 8-3 victory. So in your opinion, Joe, I want to know how you feel. Would you say that this game can truly be an X factor to help this Mets offense that, again, has been inconsistent, has been anemic? Is this the exact type of momentum swing that they have been dying to see for over a month straight? Absolutely. And look, I mean, the game, you know, like you said, it wasn't pretty. You know, we had two runs in the first, what, eight and two-thirds innings of the game. I mean, there was a stretch going into the ninth inning where the Mets had scored, you know, coming into tonight. We were held scoreless in 11 straight innings going back to the very end of game one. 
And then going into the ninth, we had that was a 19 inning stretch in Cincinnati where we had only scored two runs. So it was pathetic. But I think with that ninth and ultimately the 10th inning, that this could absolutely turn things around. And it's, you know, you, I got to be careful to say we're not looking to turn the season around, right? Because all in all, I mean, the Mets have not really hit the skids. The season's still really successful. We're still, what, 20 games over 500 exactly? 20 games right above now. 500, and yet the season has ended already five times this year. I, I I'm know. Not, I'm not sure if you've won that break. So, so, yeah, so it, it's like, you know, it, it's not like this is a game that's going to turn the season around, but this is a game I think that's going to turn a lot of people's spirits around. I think it's a game that's going to turn maybe our abysmal uh, runner in scoring position numbers over the past month or so. Turn that around. Maybe a game that, you know, look, we still need a bat. We still need a DH. I'm not going to say we don't, but maybe a game that gets the rest of the lineup going so that we only need one bat, not two. That, you know, some people were saying we need multiple bats. I genuinely believe we just need one bat and maybe also a game that ignites the bullpen. You know, like you said, Buck's going with the hot hand and that's what you have to do. Seth Lugo has the name recognition. Drew Smith has been a part of this team for a while. When they get hot, put them in the eighth. If not, Medina and Holderman, I don't need you to have, you know, a two, three, five years of major league service to be pitching in the eighth inning. I need you to be good right now. And right now, the guys we saw tonight are the best relievers that we have. We saw Medina, Holderman, Adovino and Diaz. And right now, those are our four best relievers, and there's no question about it. Now, Drew Smith can be that guy. He's just not right now. Lugo, hopefully, I mean, it's been the better part of a year and a half. We haven't seen him be that guy. I hope he gets back to that form. Maybe when Trevor May comes back, he'll be that guy. But I, I don't need a designated, you know, seventh inning guy, designated eighth inning guy. I, I need the hot hand in there in high leverage situations. And sometimes that might mean Diaz going in there in the eighth and Adovino going out for the ninth. If the eighth is a high leverage need a strikeout runners in scoring position situation. But I think, yeah, I think it's a big night for the offense, but also a huge night for the bullpen because they could have just, like I said before, they could have let it go to shit when Peterson got pulled three and two thirds. No one was expecting that. And instead these guys rallied and it was just one of those games, man. And that's what I love about this team with the next man up mentality we've spoken about. I believe in all four episodes we've done now, it's just one of those games where when things look like they're going South, look like they're going downhill early. The guys just do their job. Everyone, I mean, I sound like Belichick right now, right? Everyone just <laughs> did their job. Relievers did their job. The bats did their job. Clutch hitting. Dom Smith had a great game. We've complained about him so much this year. Everyone just did their job. It was really a, a great team win, a great team comeback. And I uh, hope it translate, uh, translates into the next, what, seven divisional games we've got, the Marlins and the Braves. Yeah, and as I've told you in the past, the divisional games mean more than anything else. It's not even close, right? In case you guys aren't aware, I'll throw this stat at you one more time. The team in the NL East that wins the most games against respective NL East opponents in a regular season has, in fact, won the NL East division the past nine years. So the Mets have done really strong against the division so far this year. That has been their bread and butter. Not so much against teams, especially if they're from the AL or anything of that nature, but against the teams that you really need to beat. Now is a massive test that starts again tonight at the time you guys watching this on YouTube. Make sure to smash that like and subscribe on as always. Greatly appreciate or wherever you get your podcasts, make sure to rate, review, all that fun stuff. Again, this is the newest Mets pod out there presented by the Believe Network. And stay tuned because in a couple episodes from now, we are, in fact, going to have our third and final co-host. And, yes, he is, in fact, a former New York Met. So you don't want to miss out on that announcement. Trust me, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be only the beginning here on the Believe Network for Believe in Queens. But let's get into game one in this pitching matchup, right? Because these are some interesting pitching matchups. And 
before we deep dive them all, I did just want to emphasize something with you here, Joe, because mm -hmm. it's important. You know, we talked about prior how it would be nice if Mad Max, you know, we you were a little bummed at first to hear him when he returned when he did. He's like, I want to see him pitch against the Braves. Well, the Mets, they have that same mentality. They push Mad Max out of the rotation where he's not going to start instead of Sunday, which is a series finale against Sandy Alcantara, one of the best pitchers in the league, but rather Monday in Atlanta against the Braves. Grant to the Braves, who have had strong numbers against Scherzer in his career, that will deep dive after the Marlins series further. It was interesting to see the Mets do that move. They like how things are matching up right now. And it starts off with game one here, and that is probably the last time that we are expected to see Trevor Williams in this rotation for a while, knowing that Chris Bassett is back this series, and so is Mad Max in the rotation overall. Williams, 1-5 with a 4.34 year right. He's been up and down this year. I like him better as a long reliever than I do a starter. And then we're facing Castano, the southpaw, who just murdered the Mets. And unfortunately, what was a master class there in David Pearson in Miami, where he pitched really strong, 6-7, to seven, only giving off at most tour and runs. However, Castano, 1-1, a 2.42 year right for the young southpaw. Went seven innings, two earned runs allowed only in his victory against the Mets a week or so ago, or two weeks ago now. It's been a little bit bit but what's your initial reaction to this game one matchup pitching wise and then the matchups going forward here against Miami yeah I, I don't love this game one move now look I, I'm it's you're damned if you do you're damned if you don't here because it's like I agree with you we talked about it we want Scherzer to go against the Braves um but at the same time game one especially in a four game set is so important and the Marlins are a team that they're hot as hell they won six in a row before losing tonight against Otani and the Angels uh, but but they're one of the hotter teams in baseball over the past week, if not the hottest. I mean, them and the Astros, really. And it, it's like, even though they're hot and they're, you know, knocking on the door of 500, there's still a team at home you want to win three out of four against. And so I don't love that game one, we're putting ourselves in a tough position because Castano, first off, everyone knows we've stunk against lefties in general this year. Castano yeah. pitched really well against us his last time. I mean, we've seen the Marlins more in the past three weeks than I care to. And then Trevor Williams, as much as, and you hit the nail on the head, love what he's done out of the bullpen. It's like, if you look at his splits here, his last two starts at Houston, four innings, three earned, got touched up, got pulled early. The Ranger game, the one Ranger game that the Mets lost on Saturday, didn't even make it out of the fourth. Three and two thirds, five earned, was so prone to that long ball. And he's just, you know, he started off well, gave up one run early, and then the Mets took the lead, and then he just, like, coughed it right back up. It's been, it's been discouraging lately, him as a starter. Meanwhile, as a reliever, you know, against the Astros, the same Astros that as a starter touched him up, he went two and a third scoreless out of the pen. You know, he, he came in against the Angels and allowed nothing out of the pen against the Brewers, two and a third, one run. So Williams has been great, and I love what he's done out of the bullpen. As a starter, it's been ugly. And, you know, when the Mets have struggled so mightily against lefties and against Castano, um, specifically, you know, in their encounter with him, I don't like the idea that we might be giving away game one. And look, there's, there's a lot more to it than just the pitching matchup. You know, obviously, we've got a much better lineup than the Marlins. I just, I don't love that game one. I'd be a lot more confident if Bassett was going game one, especially when we talk about his home and away splits and how much more dominant he's been at City Field, you know. I don't want to be digging ourselves out of a hole just to hope for a split if we drop game one. 
And that's a great point, too. But speaking of Bassett, at least the upside is while he will not be available for Thursday's game, he will surely be available for Friday's game as he will be getting the start in game two of the series as of now. It's going to be Bassett versus Lopez. And the interesting about this matchup is Bassett has pitched his last two starts, his last start prior to him being on the COVID list, was against Miami, and he went seven innings, only giving up three earned. He had a really strong outing in that victory in Miami where the Mets won 5-3. But Bassett, six 6-5 on the year with an ear rate just over four returning from the COVID IL stint. Versus Pablo Lopez, Lopez is 5-4 and four with a sub-three ear rate, but the Mets have only faced Lopez once this year, and they beat up on him pretty good. He surrendered seven runs, six earned, and only 5.1 innings pitched. And I believe that was at City Field. So that's definitely a positive for the Mets who are basing on matchup here in game two. I like the odds of Bassett coming in and being a bulldog as long as he's feeling 100% coming off of, again, being sick and all that. So it will be interesting to see how game two goes for the Mets. But going back quickly to game one, and this mm-hmm. is something that I will emphasize not just for game one, but for game three. This Mets team needs to figure out how to hit lefties. It's getting to the point where it's obnoxious. And this is something where I've said it before and I'll say it again. This was an issue for them all of the 2021 season. And I know you might be wondering, Warty, the Mets were anemic with their offense entirely last year. I'm well aware, but they were even worse against subpar, no-name southpaws. And we're seeing two of them here in this series against the Miami Marlins in game one against Castano and in game three against uh, Braxton Garrett, who the Mets did touch up on a decent amount last time they saw him. That we'll get into in a minute. But the point is, when Pete Alonso was batting right around 200 against lefties, if not lower, and literally any time a slider down in is going up against him, he's literally looking like silly out there. He really is. Francisco Lindor, completely anemic against left-handed stars this year. Starling Marte, he's been up and down, even though Marte has some of the better numbers among other guys. When you're looking forward as well, Marcana has been a little up and down. Eduardo Escobar has been solid. But, I mean, they're just, for the main guys that you would like to see step up, in Lindor and Alonzo, the two you could rightfully argue, biggest hitters in this lineup, for good reason, are struggling this mightily against lefties. That's, one, not encouraging. That's something that needs to change if the Mets have any shot on doing anything significant this year. Because I assure you that come playoff time, the Mets are going to face some dominant southpaws. And if you can't hit them now, especially against bottom fear teams, how should I expect you to be able to do that when it matters most? Yeah, I mean, you know, you're going to have Max Freed and Clayton Kershaw and, you know, Sean Manea in the, in the postseason. Even so, Tyler yeah, exactly. Anderson, if we're talking yeah. Dodgers. Yeah, I mean, Anderson actually, didn't he dominate us in one of those yes. first two games at Los yep. Angeles? And I'm not really impressed by Anderson. In fact, uh, we'll be dropping, although since this will be airing on Thursday, uh, they, they should probably already be out on the Believe social pages. We'll be dropping my uh, all-star team uh, preview suggestion. The, the guys I think should be making the all-star. So Thursday's the American League. Friday will be National League. And I don't have Tyler Anderson, even with his, what, 9-1 and one record? I don't have him on the all-star team because I'm not that impressed with him. So yeah, the Mets are going to have to face these lefties. They're going to have to beat these lefties in way more high leverage situations than games against the Marlins in July. So let's start now, guys. You know, Castano would love to touch him up. Uh, this game on Saturday, though, this is that that I consider. I really consider Friday and Saturday must win games because Thursday is no guarantee. And then Sunday, as great as Taiwan Walker's been, he's going up against a guy who's been arguably the best pitcher in the National League. So that's no guarantee either. So Friday and Saturday, I'm counting them as must-win games. Now, I hope Friday we see the same response from Bassett that we saw from Scherzer and his return start. Obviously, Scherzer's was a little more highly touted, a little more longer awaited. But I hope Bassett comes out, like you said, with that pit bull mentality, that bulldog mentality. And then Cookie, 
you know, I mean, Cookie had a real rough stretch where three out of his last four starts prior to the Rangers outing were disastrous. Both starts against Houston, his start against the Angels. But I say three out of four were disastrous. He had a good outing against Miami mixed in there. So I'm hoping, you know, we get another good outing against Miami. He picks up where he left off with that gutsy, you know, tough, courageous performance against the Rangers. And, and, you know, we need Bassett and Cookie to deliver Friday, Saturday, um, and then hope that we can, you know, steal one either Thursday with Williams on the bump or Sunday as great as Walker's been. You know, don't forget, last time Walker and Alcantara went head to head, Walker bested him. So it's not like he can't do it. You know, it's definitely, uh, look, none of these games uh, I'm saying the Mets are out of it. I think I think we actually, our worst shot might be Thursday. I think we have a better chance. We've seen Alcantara twice already. I think we have a better chance beating Alcantara at this point with Walker on the bump than we do at beating Castano with Williams on the bump, who's not going to go seven scoreless like Walker can any given night. I think you hit the nail on the head. Thursday is the biggest concern for me personally, just based off of what Castano has done already against the Mets and what Trevor Williams has not done, rather, as a starter for the majority of the season, separate from his bullpen. But game three is really important, not just because of matchup. When you have, again, Braxton Garrett, a fellow Southpaw, he's one and three with a 4.25 year ray. However, this is a Southpaw that the Mets have at least done some damage on. He's faced the Mets once this season, and he gave up three earned runs in only four innings. So that's encouraging, at least, that the Mets were able to jump on him and have him not get extended there that we saw with the Lodolos of the world of recent against the Reds, for instance, right? He wasn't carving up the Mets nearly to the same degree, and the Mets do avoid Rodgers in this series as well, too. Um, but Garrett, matching up against Cookie, who's 9-4 and four with a 4.64 ERA, this will not just be an interesting pitching matchup, but this game, in my opinion, is the most important of this entire series by far, and that is because it's Keith Hernandez night. Keith is getting that number 17 retired at City Field. That's God, a big that's so deal. long overdue. It's To say it's long overdue is an understatement, let alone being long overdue that he should be in the Hall of Fame. But again, that's a discussion for another day. But hey, you Keith- know, we, we, we just baby steps. We just got Gil Hodges, finally. Yeah. That And look, I know that, you know, he's obviously in there as a Brooklyn Dodger, but it's funny. I went to specifically the Mets-Dodgers game. Sorry for the side tangent, my man. But the Mets-Dodgers game that I went to when they were out here, I specifically chose Saturday because it was the night that the Dodgers were finally retiring Gil Hodges' number, oh, and which, of perfect. course, the Mets, yep. the Mets retired years ago. Uh, the Dodgers were finally doing it. And it was also, and I got it right here, it was uh, Gil Hodges' bobblehead night. Oh, perfect. And, and so, so that was huge for me because – uh, all three of my grandpas, he was there. And I say three, one is a step grandpa. Um, but all three of the men I consider my grandfathers, Gil Hodges was their favorite player. Because don't forget, you know, most of us Met fans, some might have been Giants fans, but most of us Met fans would be Brooklyn Dodger fans had they never left. Um, so that, that's the case with my family. So we just got Hodges in there this year. And even though he's in as a Dodger, I consider Hodges to be more closely tied with New York and with the Mets than I do. I, I was that people didn't know who he was. I mean, and yeah, that just sums up LA man. Dodger fans for you. I mean, that's, that, that is Dodger fans. Like yeah. they were like, Oh, who is he? Oh, it's a long time ago. Okay. And it's just like, you don't know Gil Hodges. Like what? But yeah, I agree. I mean, Keith is going to be, he, he's got to be in there too on the veterans committee um, because he is quite simply the best fielding first baseman of all time. And even though, you know, he didn't have Willie McCovey power, Keith was as good a hitter gap to gap as the game of Major League Baseball has ever seen. And don't let, you know, the very tail end of his career is last year with the Mets, that one year in Cleveland. Don't let those, you know, taint anything because he ended up a 296 hitter. Prior to those last two ugly years when he probably should have retired, but pride prevented that, Keith was a career 300 hitter. 
Yeah. I mean, that is not easy to do to be a career 300 hitter as it is. 296 is impressive as hell when you're especially, you know, I, I mean, the guy was to, to first base what Ozzie Smith was to shortstop. And so, you know, I agree with you hundred percent thrilled. He's finally getting his number retired. You know, we did the right thing with Kuzman. Uh, what was that last year? Um, you know, I'm still waiting on Gary Carter. I, I think that number eight should be up there as well. Um, Agreed. But yeah, I, I love what Steve Cohen's doing and, 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 you know, embracing the history in the Mets that for some reason, the Wilpons were just so stingy to retire those numbers. Yeah. And I think we'll leave the tangent at that because I can go all day when talking about the <laughs> Wilponsian regime. But going back now again to the series, a kind of recap and uh, brief things. Game four, the biggest matchup of it all pitching wise, Alcantara. Nine and three with a one point eight two ERA, and Alcantara his last outing pitched a complete game. I mean, he's just he's a bulldog, and I know that you eight, love eight innings, but yeah, oh eight innings, pardon me. Um, but it seems like Alcantara is that anomaly of a pitcher this year. Where yes, the Mets were able to get enough on him. They got four earned runs, and I believe it was five total runs in seven innings when they uh, got up on him in Miami in their last series against each other. And Walker seven and two with a two point eight six ERA gave up three earned last time he faced the Marlins again. Won that battle between the two. However, Alcantara is such an anomaly of a pitcher this year because he is breaking the norms of being a pitcher that normally you're going six, seven innings tops on average every every fourth, fifth day. Not for Alcantara. No, he's staying in that ball game no matter what. And don't get me wrong, there's obvious risk factors when it comes to that, but I just love the tenacity. I love the drive. I love the pride that someone like Sandy has. And I, I hate that the Mets have to match up against him as much as they do. Now he's on a great favorable contract because this guy is just such a treat to watch. And I yeah. do believe that this Sunday matchup, the, the uh, Matt Aid uh, game, is going to be truly a pitcher's duel between the two teams. And hopefully the Mets, again, offensively, can just leg out enough to secure, I'd imagine, if not the series victory at that point, then hopefully by that point there in the series finale. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll tell you this, man. Mets-Marlins might not be the sexiest matchup for Sunday night baseball, but this pitching duel surely is. I, I mean, this is a pitching duel that the whole country should see. I, what's Oh, well, Sunday night, Yankees-Red Sox, but... Yeah, not much pitching going to be going on there between no. uh, Ty oh, Tyone and Pavetta, actually two guys that have had really good seasons. Um, but this matchup is th – this is the baseball I love, right? This is what I want to see. This is going to be like a 3-2, to 2-1 two, two to one game. And you mentioned Alcantara. This guy is just so damn old school. I love it. And, and, you know, there's a lot of obviously problems when it comes to old school sports mentalities, and I'm not like that with a lot of things. But – I think that there's also a problem when pitchers today struggle to even go six innings. And so for Agreed. Alcantara, in 11 straight starts, he's gone at least seven innings. 11 straight starts. He's averaging seven and two-thirds per start over those 11. The reason I have this in my back pocket is because yesterday my best bet was not the Marlins money line, but rather I took it a step further to get better odds. It was Alcantara to get the win. Now, that's a much riskier bet whenever you take the starting pitcher to yes. get the win. But this is a guy who I love making that bet with, making that bet on, because you need a couple things. You either need a team with a great bullpen if you're going to make that bet, which the Marlins don't have, or you need a guy who's going to go deep into games. And Alcantara averaging over his last 11 starts, seven and two thirds. Well, that's why he's seven and one over those 11 starts. Not too many guys win seven out of 11 decisions, but Alcantara's doing that because he just doesn't want to be taken out of the game. You have to, Don Mattingly has to pry the ball out of his hand. I mean, you know, right now I'm going to ask you a question, Tyler. Who deserves to start the All-Star game for the National League? Tony Gonsolin, who's 10-0 with a league-leading 1-5-4 ERA, or Alcantara? Alcantara. Uh, I mean, 
with all with all respect to Gonsolin, what he has done this year, Gonsolin has an all-star team behind him, even with the injuries that they've sustained. Mm-hmm. I think about Alcantara, what he's been able to do with the type of roster that is around him. And I think that, along with the fact that this man has eaten plenty more innings than Gonsolin this year, yeah, I think all those factors go in hand with why Sandy should be the starter. Gonsolin is 100% deserving to be an all-star. Don't get me wrong. But Sandy 1000% deserves to be the starter of that game. And that isn't just based on bias with knowing the NL East a little bit more than, say, the NL West. But if you look at all the numbers, they will tell you that Sandy is an anomaly of a pitcher this year. Doesn't matter what Tony's doing. He, Sandy's just on another level, consistently going deep into games. And that's something that does not get appreciated nearly enough, especially in today's game, where truly, if a guy, as you said, 11 straight starts with at least seven innings, how many other starters in baseball are doing that right none, now? None. Uh, exactly. I, I'm going to go on and none. say little to none. Um, so, yeah. In a nutshell, Sandy is my all-star yeah. starter. Really isn't much of a question. So, so this was really interesting. Now, again, by the time this is released, it's Thursday. So, yesterday, Jeff Passan put out a tweet comparing them. Now, if you look at the numbers. Yes. Got, you, you, yeah. So, Gonsolin's got an edge if you look at the numbers, right? 10-0 with a 1-5-4 leads the league. Alcantara 9-3, and still remarkable, with a 1-8-2, still remarkable. But Gonsolin, those numbers are clearly better. So Passon's numbers were if Alcantara didn't go so deep in every game, if he pitched, if he came out of games pretty much the same time as Gonsolin, which Gonsolin rarely exceeds the sixth inning. So five and a third, five and two thirds, six innings. Alcantara would have almost an identical ERA. If he didn't stay in the games longer, his ERA would go down from 182 to, I don't know if you're pulling up the tweet right now, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was 155, like yeah. quite literally a hundredth of a point behind Gonsolin. So yeah, Alcantara, uh, the ironic thing was he'd actually have lower strikeout numbers. So he gives up more runs later in the games as expected, but he actually strikes more guys out later in the games, which is rare when you're going through a lineup three, maybe even four times. Um, he gets better as the game goes on. It's like a That's fine wine, so baby. important about him. So it, it's funny. I will say this. Gonsolin is probably going to start the All-Star game because it's at Dodger Stadium. And I mean, I have no qualm with that, right? He's 10-0. Everyone, like when Matt Harvey started at City Field, it was incredible, you know. So I have no issue with Gonsolin starting the All-Star game. But right now, if I had to if I had to put in a Cy Young vote, 10-0 is tough to go against. 1-5-4 is tough to go against. Because of the innings and the late game dominance and the single-handedly willing his team to victory. I mean, you look at that Angels game, man. He went eight scoreless. The Marlins barely won. That bullpen tried to give it away. They, the, the Angels cut it to 2-1. They had the bases loaded, one out in the ninth. That Marlins bullpen's a disaster. Alcantara wills them to victory. I, I mean, he's got my Cy Young vote right now. Alcantara has also currently a lower expected ERA in fifth than Tony Gonsolin. Not drastic, yes. but enough. And those yes. numbers are important in my, in my personal opinion. I try to weigh far more than just baseline ERA when evaluating pitchers and you know, I think Sandy, again, great. Hopefully he doesn't dominate the Mets. Hopefully they jump on him in this Sunday finale. But now let's pivot, uh, Joe, uh, to talking about some really interesting things regarding the Mets. And it starts with Francisco Alvarez. In case you guys don't know, Francisco Alvarez, he's kind of a good prospect. As of now, he's been ranked this week the second best prospect in all of baseball. And he will soon be the first best because the man in front of him. He's not even a prospect anymore. (laughs) Exactly. The man in front of him, I believe, is Riley Green, who is like, what, 70 uh, at-bats or play appearances away from not being considered anymore. So, yeah, Alvarez is essentially the number one prospect in baseball now. 
and he was just moved up over this past week to AAA when one for three with throwing out a runner at second base in his debut. I mean, if you look at Alvarez's numbers this year, let's just take a moment to talk about what has been amazing because this is one step closer to the Mets having potentially their franchise catcher for an extended period of time. Talk about a position that the Mets have been lackluster at all year. Offensively, it has been by all means the catching position. They're lucky if they get any consistent production from James McCann, Tomasino, and the Mazikas at times offensively, even though that they were factors in the Mets win. Both came up big tonight in Cincinnati, by the way. They did. They did. I will give credit where credit's due 1,000%, but those are things that unfortunately have been few and far in between this season. Alvarez, however, at the age of only 20 this season, has a total of 18 home runs, 48 RBIs, a 272 average, and a 904 OPS this season. He has been simply dominant, and this is in not even 70 games is what we're seeing from Alvarez. So, by all means, I Joe, you and I are in agreement. This is not someone that we expect to see the Mets uh, really play. Uh, actually have called up for an extended period of time this year, even with the lacklusterness at the catcher slash DH position. It would be far-fetched to see Alvarez get one called up this year and two have a significant impact from the jump for a Mets team in a win-now stage. So I guess my question to you right now is, Joe, is how pumped up are you to see Francisco Alvarez one step closer being up with the bigs? And what is kind of your expectation when he doesn't just arrive in Queens, whether that's the end of this year or next season, but really, overall, what you think he will be impact-wise to the Mets right away? I think, well, well, right away is different. I think eventually he's going to be a star. I think Francisco Alvarez, I mean, the Mets, I think for the Mets, it was a franchise record, the amount of money they gave to him when they signed him at 16 years old. Yes. There's a reason for this. And he's lived up to the billing every step of the way. Look, I don't want to go anointing a kid who has played two games in AAA the savior, but luckily with this Mets team, with the lineup, the way that they're constructed, even though on paper, on average, the Mets are the oldest team in Major League Baseball, they still have stars that are going to be there for a while to come. The Brandon Nimmo's, the Jeff McNeil's, the Pete Alonzo's. So even though the Mets are the oldest team in baseball, because yes, they've got, you know, Max Scherzer in their rotation, who's who they just signed at, you know, 38 years old, and they signed Marte, the, the Mets still have plenty of young superstars, and Alvarez is going to blend right in and fit right in with those guys. He's going to be a part of this core, you know, no disrespect, I, I love a guy like Eduardo Escobar, but however long his current contract is, whether it's two years or three years, that's probably the extent of how long he'll be in New York Met, right? Oh, absolutely. Alonzo, McNeil, Nimmo, eventually Alvarez. These guys are going to form a core that hopefully can stay intact, hopefully can bring rings to Queens. I, I think Alvarez is going to be a superstar. You know, I don't want to see him this year, though. And I know that you and I are in agreement on that. And some people are calling for him because McCann is, you know, it's funny, the same uncle who was at the game who, who made the Lugo-Parnell comparison, I have to give him credit on this one as well. He was talking about James McCann, and he said, no one who's built like that, who's in such good shape, should be such a guarantee for either a double play or a weak infield pop-up every time he's at the plate. I, I mean, McCann, he looks clueless in, in the batter's box. Nito's actually been decent. With the bases empty, he stinks, ironically, but with runners in scoring position, with runners on, Nito's offensive numbers are actually a lot better. Um, and the way he plays defense and guns guys out from his knees, I, I can live with Nito's offensive production. So maybe if we can ship McCann off, maybe we next year get an Alvarez Nito platoon. Another thing I'm looking at, and, and this excites the hell out of me when it comes to Alvarez, is if the Mets trade, if and when the Mets trade for a DH this season, probably going to be a guy on a rental, right? Probably someone whose contract is expiring, hence the reason that he's on the trading block. 
And so Alvarez, if the Mets still have McCann, still have Nito, this is a kid who can DH next year. Maybe yeah. catch once a week, learn from Nito, learn from McCann, because as bad as they've both been at the plate, they're both masterful defensively. So I'm excited to maybe see the Mets carry three catchers next year and have Alvarez predominantly DH. I can't wait for his bat to be in Queens, no matter how it comes, whether he's your starting catcher, your opening day catcher, or he's your DH for a year or two while McCann's contract runs out. No matter what way, shape, or form we see him, I think Alvarez is going to make a huge impact. And I'm so glad he brought the DH because when evaluating Alvarez, and I've been following him for literally since the Mets signed him, but the biggest thing about him has been, one, his lack of defensive ability. You know, he's around at best an average defender, but he's still below average from all evaluation. tonight, right? What's that? Didn't he throw a guy out tonight? Um, if It was two nights ago. He did. Okay. He did okay. tonight, yeah. But Alvarez, though, the big thing about him is that, thankfully, with this universal DH, the Mets very well could find themselves in a scenario where even if the catching is so subpar, which I don't expect, but even if it really is a drastic impact on either the pitching staff and or the likes of just impacting a game defensively, we could see a Jordan Alvarez situation with someone like Francisco Alvarez. That is an outlandic where, okay. yes, they don't bring too much defensive upside, but they can be so zoned in at the plate that that itself can make, by all means, make up for any lack of defensive ability there. So, I mean, Alvarez is the best of both worlds. You can get him at DH. You can get him at catcher. Try to develop him, develop him as a catcher because that's who you want for potentially the next decade there at that position. But at worst, you can have more defensively-minded catchers there while having a lock of the DH for years on end in Alvarez. So either way, it's a win-win situation for the Mets. It's just better off on how they evaluate, how they see is best for him going forward and his development. But we talk about Alvarez. Let's talk about the man that is set to be back in this Mets rotation within a month, and that is Jacob DeGrom. And Jake, who just pitched his first rehab start, I feel so bad for the Hammerheads of Marlins affiliate in Port St. Lucie. He faced six batters, and what did Jake do? He struck out five of them, making him look absolutely silly. 1.2 innings pitch, no earned runs, no hits, no walks, nothing, striking out five. Uh, Jake touching 100 on the gun consistently. He did that in his bullpens <sighs> as well. That was re actually reported from my buddy Pat Regaz, who was on the beat for the Mets. That's been hush-hush. There's been no VLO reported, but he did emphasize that, yeah, Jake has consistently been hitting triple digits every single time that he's been pitching for the Mets prior to his rehab stint. So this wasn't just something that miraculously happened. As much as we may gripe and be concerned about the VLO, that it may hurt him in the end, this is just something that this guy's doing effortlessly. So I'm not going to complain if it's something that isn't hurting him. He says he feels 100%, and now he's pitching again this Friday night in Port St. Lucie, and he'll be going upwards of 40 pitches there. And after that, as long as there's, there, there's no setbacks, we'll see probably two, at most three more rehab starts, and then Jake will return either before or just after the All-Star break. But Joe, has to feel good to see Jake not just on the bump, but feeling 100%, and again, looking like he hasn't skipped a beat whatsoever. Yeah, man. I mean, he faced six batters, struck out five, and the only other one you mentioned, no hits, no walks, he hit the guy. Now, I feel bad for that guy. Wouldn't want to yeah. be the A-ball player is to get beamed by a 100-mile-per-hour fastball from DeGrom, of all people. But you can also say that, yeah, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I'm kind of kind of a badass now. I just got drilled by Jacob DeGrom. You know, yeah, that's, right? that's a big deal, right? He, he has... I mean, the dude's probably younger than me. He's probably like your age. So, yeah, he's exactly. got a story now, even if he doesn't make it to the bigs. Yep. But, I, I mean, look, Here's my thing for the for the crowd that says, oh, he's throwing 100. He's going to throw his arm out. He's going to – what do you think? You, do you want him to, to exert himself at 70% and throw 95? Because first off, if he's going 70%, he's not throwing 95. 
And secondly, if you want him to throw 95, he's still going to be going like 95%. So it's not like, I, I just don't get what people think. Like you want him to take it easy. Well, he's not going to be taking it easy if he's throwing 95. That's still damn hard to do. So why not have him just go 100% and throw 100? Like I, I don't get the logic or the rationale from people who are mad at him throwing 100. He's rehabbing. He's working his way back. And when Jake is back, which we all want to see him be back at 100%, well, when he's 100%, he throws 100 miles per hour. So I don't, I mean, what do you want him to do? Turn into Noah Syndergaard and be like a mediocre at best pitcher? I mean, I don't get the crowd that's pissed that he's throwing 100 miles per hour. He's Jake. He's going to do what he does. And uh, I do want to shut down these rumors about the Braves pretty early. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I well, think first it's... Of all, the biggest issue, though, is that I don't know why people have Buster Only's notifications on Twitter. I think that's yeah, the but, biggest red flag to begin with. I mean, today, Andy Martino came out and is talking about it. And I'm sorry, but he's the biggest hack out there. So, like, if Andy Martino says something's going to happen, I mean, it's not going to happen. I, I don't think, you know, uh, this is just... Uh, this is what happens in a long 162-game season when, at times, you run out of stuff to talk about. Th- that's simply what it is. Uh, you know, let let Jake come back and win a World Series with the Mets and then see if he still wants to go run to the Braves. Like, to me, that's just an absolutely crazy thing to be talking about. It's not like he's Zach Wheeler, who, you know, grew up a Braves fan and is from Atlanta. I mean, he might have grown up a Braves fan because he's from like kind of northern Florida. I don't know, but I, I don't see any correlation. I, I don't see any reasonable, realistic reason to uh, to say that, you know, right now Jake's his mind is fixated on the Braves. Like, no, I think he sees what Scherzer just did in his first start back. I think he sees that this is the best lineup that the Mets have had. And even though it's funny because they pulled a classic DeGrom in Scherzer's yes. first start back, outside of that, this is a lineup that's absolutely raking, uh, better than any lineup DeGrom's ever played with, uh, e- even you know one that went to the World Series in 2015. I think he wants to come back. I think he wants to be a part of this. He's been a Met his entire career. I think he wants to win with the Mets. And guys. Steve Cohen just gave Max Scherzer record-setting money at 38 years old. You're worried that Steve Cohen's not going to want to pay DeGrom? Are you guys crazy? Steve Cohen said it. Fuck the luxury tax. He's going to pay whatever it costs. I mean, the Mets, just let let them win. Let DeGrom come back. Let the Mets win games. Let them win games in October and November. And and stop stressing about where he's going to sign. It's July. This season's going on, and we're on pace for over 100 wins. I don't even think I need to add anything on to that. You hit the nail on the head, Joe, a hundred percent. And I think the best way to now get to the conclusion of the pod is what you guys probably were um, enticed to click on the video here on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And that is trade talk regarding the New York Mets and how should they approach the DH position? Now here on my YouTube channel, I've talked about position player targets for the Mets array. And I have talked about, the initial report over this past week, less than a week at the time recording this, of Trey Mancini being linked to the Mets. But let's emphasize that further, Joe, because I haven't heard your thoughts about it. And I want to know everyone's thoughts, especially on YouTube. Let me know in the chat or in the comments below on this one, because the Mets, as we know, they have been anemic, truly anemic with their offensive production at the DH position. And to give you an idea, this was tweeted out from uh, my buddy Michael Mayer, does a great job covering the Mets through the Mets Marais blog. Tweet this out prior to the series finale game between the Mets and the Reds. He said Mets designated hitters are slashing 224, 303, 371 this season. That includes Pete Alonso's roughly 900 OPS and over 1,100 OPS from Francisco Lindor in that limited role they've had. 
If you take away Alonzo Lindor, the Mets have a measly two home runs and 18 RBIs and 212 at-bats at the DH position. What are you supposed to have the DH position, Joe? You're supposed to be offense and nothing but offense, all right? That was the most appealing thing heading into the year for the Mets. They thrive with the DH in the short in 2020 season, and they have done absolutely jack shit with it so far this year. Buck has been creative on defensive alignments and things of that nature, but outside of that, they've done absolutely nothing. Dom has been clutching up as of late, which is awesome to see, but it's not something I'm banking on. So the Mets are fully aware of that. It's already been widely reported that they've shown interest in numerous players out there. And let's talk for a second about Trey Mancini because the Mets, they've expressed interest in him. What is his market going to be? What is his value going to be? We will soon find out. He is a guy that is not a rental, but he is in that fine line of a balance between the two as a mutual option after the season of $10 million. So him and the Orioles or whoever he's dealt to agree, he's on a $10 million deal and then he's a free agent in 2024. Mancini, however, like I described in my video, is having a really strong year for the Orioles. Eight bombs, 32 RBIs, a 281 average, and a just under 800 OPS, a 125 WRC+, which means he's 25% better than the average player right now in baseball as a guy that plays mainly DH but can handle first and right field. So you do have more defensive versatility versus some other DH options out there. But the biggest thing that I love about Trey Mancini is two things. One, this guy is nearly identical batting from against righties or lefties. He doesn't have drastic splits, which is important for this Mets team that has struggled mightily against Southpaws this year. That isn't just important enough, but two, if you look at advanced numbers through baseball savant, Joe, yes, he only has eight home runs this year. If the Mets are looking for a slugger at DH, why is Mancini appealing? Well, Mancini would have 17 home runs if he was hitting every single game so far this season at City Field. So if you don't know Baltimore, it's a really hard hard ballpark now to hit balls, especially from the left field. Wasn't always. The ball. <laughs> Wasn't always. They changed their outfield alignment this year, and it's not easy now for right-hand batters that are pulling the ball especially. So when you look at Mancini, when you look at what he would have done at City so far this year, and you know – that more than anything, he would bring not just, you know, a, a Paisan back into Queens, which definitely doesn't hurt. We've done it in the past with Piazza and others. But you bring in the fact of a guy that is in the prime of his career, such a great story being a cancer survivor like Cookie himself, and just brings you that crucial big pop high average hitter similar to Alonzo that just makes your offense that much deeper that they haven't had for the entirety of the season. So, Joe, take it away. What's your initial reaction to these Mancini rumors? I love Trey Mancini. If the Mets got Trey Mancini, I'd be happy. I, I love his story. He's a great guy. He's been a great hitter on many awful Baltimore Orioles teams. Buck Showalter knows him well. They have good rapport. They have good chemistry, a good relationship. I would not at all have a problem with the Mets bringing in Trey Mancini. He's not the guy I want. The guy I want is Josh Bell. Josh Bell. Ding, ding, ding. And I know that some people, their first initial reaction might be, well, the Nationals aren't going to trade him. It's interdivision. The Nationals have packed it up for the season, and Josh Bell is purely a rental. He's on a one-year $10 million deal this year. It expires at the end of the season. There's no option, none of that. So Bell purely is a rental. So, yeah, for two months, I think the Nationals, if they got, you know, what they wanted in return, whether it be money, because God knows they're paying, you know, Steven Strasburg. They're still paying Max Scherzer. They're going to be paying Patrick Corbin until you and I are 60 years old, Tyler. So maybe money is all it takes. And Steve Cohen's got that. Uh, or maybe it's a mid-level prospect. It wouldn't have to be a Mauricio. It wouldn't have to be a, a Brett Beatty just tossing a name out there, even though he's not on the block. But Josh Bell 
is the guy I want. Now, Mancini, I'm glad you brought up the splits because I love the fact that he's a 281 hitter who is pretty much 281 against righties, 281 against lefties. Josh Bell's hitting 311 on the season. It's ninth, not in the National League, but ninth in Major League Baseball. He's got 12 home runs, which, you know, like Mancini's eight is nothing to wow you, but we know Bell has pop. We've seen Bell go deep against the Mets enough. Seven of those home runs are against righties, five are against lefties. That's really good. He's got pop from both sides of the plate. Now let's look at his average from each side of the plate. 332 against righties, crushing it as a lefty hitter. 287 as a as a right-handed batter, of, uh, you know, against lefties. The Mets really struggle against lefties, and Josh Bell is a switch hitter, actually better against lefties than Mancini, who's a pure righty. Bell's the guy I want. He's got, you know, we know the pop he has, even if he's only got 12 home runs this year. Make no mistake about it. Wherever he finishes the season, he's going to finish with north of 25 home runs, uh, maybe even 30. So, you know, he doesn't have much protection in this lineup. He's hitting after Soto, and the Nationals lineup really dips off after that. You put him in a Mets lineup where he's got protection, where, you know, essentially this lineup can be really dangerous one to eight. Assuming you have the catcher hitting ninth, this is a lineup that one to eight. I mean, if you have... Josh Bell hitting seventh and Escobar hitting eighth. Yeah, I'll take Escobar as an eight hitter. I'll take that as protection as the number seven hitter. So Bell coming to the Mets, I think we'd see a slight uptick in his power. But the way he's hitting practically 290 or better, uh, no matter which side of the plate he's on, he is the guy I want. I love Mancini. I love Brandon Drury, although I think his power numbers are slightly inflated because he plays in Cincinnati. They are. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think he'd come to the Mets be a good doubles guy. Uh, you know, hit the occasional home run. Wouldn't be mad if the Mets got Drury. Uh, but at the end of the day, Josh Bell on my list is just so far ahead of everyone else. And I think that because he is purely a rental, I think he'll be affordable. Look, the guy's going to finish the year with 25 and 100. And, you know, he's currently hitting 311. So to me, it's like, it's a no brainer. Go get Josh Bell, guys. Joe, it's hard for us to have disagreements in podcasts like this because we're we're 100% on the same wavelength. I love Mancini as well, and I think this is really a 1A, 1B situation, right? Because if the Mets, Mm -hmm. if they land Mancini, I think the biggest factor that could really benefit the Mets with Trey is not just one. Let's say in the assumption where the Mets simply cannot sway the Nationals in a deal. Let's just talk about that hypothetical, okay? For whatever reason, Mike Rizzo, being stubborn as he has in the past, says, no, we're not going to deal with you Mets. We're not doing the division. Okay. You go to Baltimore, you have that connection that uh, that um, that you already emphasized with Buck. Buck, of course, was a manager of Mancini for over two years during his time in Baltimore. Knows that relationship well, knows what he can bring to Queens. But one thing that is a standout for the Mets, and I might emphasize this further in a separate video over the next week, is the fact that the Baltimore Orioles quite literally have five to six relievers that can all benefit this bullpen right now. And that Ooh, is something Jorge that Jorge Lopez comes with. Man Jorge City. Lopez, Dylan Tate. There's many others as well. These are guys that really separate a trade partner from the Nationals. The Nationals don't have that, not nearly to the same degree. The Baltimore has a plethora of them, some of them with guys that only have a year or two left on the contract. Others are more controllable. This could be a Miguel Castro 2.0 deal for the Mets, right? But instead of just getting a Miguel Castro type reliever, you also get a Trey Mancini. So if you want to kill two birds with one stone, maybe even three, if you really want to add in uh, two relievers in there, you can really get that all done in one deal. Will it cost you more asset-wise? Yes. But if that's something that the Mets may be more comfortable doing, then I am by all means down that route. And I think that is a great idea for them 
given those reliever options. But when it comes to the pure power, the pure rental, exactly what the Mets are looking for, Josh Bell is literally written on paper to achieve exactly what this team wants. You said it best. The splits, lefties, righties, they are phenomenal. Bell having a breakout year, looking for 100 RBIs on pace so far this year. Hitting above average, over 300. This guy's a 150 WRC+, plus, around a 160 OPS+. Plus. Again, in case you guys don't know, on average for a batter, 100 is the average for a batter for WRC+, plus, OPS+. Plus. If you're anything above that, that's great. So for a guy of Bell's nature to be in the 50th and 60th percentile higher than the average among all batters in baseball is a big effing deal. Let alone the fact that Bell is someone where maybe the Mets can make a deal happen because it's been reported that they know that they have more financial flexibility than any other team out there. They really want to be creative. Could they somehow, some way, not part with much of anything because they decide, hey, we'll eat Patrick Corbin's contract. I know it may seem outlandish. I know it may seem like not an ideal thing to do, knowing that Corbin has a long-term deal. Yeah, I don't think that. I don't think that's in the cards at all. See, and here, and here's the reason why I don't think it's as impossible as maybe you make it out to be. The Mets do not want to part with any significant prospect capital, right? And the Nationals are really stingy here. The Mets, if they are willing to take Corbin's contract and just eat it maybe they can make him into, say, a reliever for them, especially down the stretch. Corbin's been better as of late, especially Ain't as a, a reliever. 25 mil a year, man. Oh, tr- trust <laughs> trust me. Trust me. It's not it's not appealing in that sense. I 100% agree with you. I'm just saying that it wouldn't be outlandish if the Mets actually ate a contract at the deadline, whether that's maybe not to the magnitude of Corbin, but could be with another club that, say, has a contract that they're trying to part with that at minimum has, you know, two, three years left on the deal. Again, I'm not saying it's likely, but I don't think it's as out of the cards as maybe what we initially thought heading into the season. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, look, I think for the Mets to get Josh Bell, they'd have to get a good deal because, you know, you don't want to trade someone to the Nationals who's going to get groomed into a guy who, who kicks the crap out of your team in years to come in those My important point exactly. games. I, I think, you know, obviously I think a guy like Mauricio – who is a top prospect that I don't really want to part ways with. I just don't see where he plays a factor in this team in the future when you have Lindor and McNeil up the middle for the foreseeable future uh, and then Beatty at third base. So like Mauricio, I think he would probably, he wouldn't be in a deal for Josh Bell, no. but you know, maybe a uh, Luis Castillo or yeah. uh, a Frankie Montas. Um, by the way, lately my, my tunes changed a little bit. I'm a little more on the Castillo train. As of late, and I am <laughs> really? like, like I was a couple episodes ago. Um, you know, Mauricio would be interesting, maybe to Baltimore. Um, don't have to worry about him burning us if he's an Oriole. And you know, if you get Mancini for a year and a half, and you get like you mentioned bullpen help. I mean, for Mancini and Lopez, I I would do that for Mauricio. I think just because I really don't see Mauricio, you, you know, how he's going to fit in on, on the Mets anytime soon. You know, I mean, Jeff McNeil's one of the best hitters in baseball and Francisco Lindor is here to stay. So where does Mauricio fit in? Maybe Baltimore, if we can pull pitching as well, maybe for Luis Castillo, uh, definitely not for Josh Bell. Though. That would have to be a more Met friendly deal. I agree. And that's why Josh Bell is so interesting. It sucks that he's on the Nats. Cause if he wasn't, I feel like this is basically a home run. It almost feels inevitable that they will go out 
and do their best to pursue him. Now, his market's yeah. going to be red hot. We're aware of that. But there's no denying that Josh Bell is the cream of the crop for what the Mets are looking for and adding a bat by this year's trade deadline. And before we wrap things up, I'm glad that you brought up Luis Castillo because I want, I want to know why your thought process has changed a little bit because something that I didn't emphasize with you statistically, and I should have, and I just didn't have it on me last time we did our pod talking about Castillo or Montas, you know, 1A, 1B, they would both be great. But as I broke down in my uh, recent trade targets video on starting pitchers, the biggest separation between the two is that Frankie Montas, even though that, yes, I will say, he has had double the amount of starts at home that he has had on the way. However, Montas at home has just over two-year ray. On the road is north of five. Luis Castillo at home has an year ray around five. Again, let's keep in mind, Cincinnati is the hardest place to pitch, not named Coors. On the road, 4.2. Yeah, on the road, just over two. So you look at the differences. Montas has thrived in a beautiful pitcher's park there in Oakland versus someone like Castillo has thrived outside of a batter's box there in Cincinnati. So adding that along with all the other numbers, I will tell you that Castillo has been the more dominant pitcher since he really is starting up his rise as a great starter for Cincinnati. I mean, they're 1A, 1B, but I again, other than value-wise, when we're talking pure talent, I do believe that Luis Castillo is the best pitcher. Yeah, I mean, look, here's here's what's changed for me. His last two starts, he, he went six innings against the Cubs and then seven strong against the Braves. Went six scoreless against the Cubs, one earned on a solo shot against Atlanta. So it's 13 innings, one earned run in his last two starts. And each of them were 11K performances. It was the K Ooh. numbers for me. I mean, the fact that that Braves game was in Cincinnati. So you weren't wrong, by the way. His ERA was actually up over five at home. And then he went seven innings of one run ball against the Braves, 11 Ks at Great American Ballpark in the one game that the Reds uh, salvaged in that Braves series over the weekend. That to me was what did it. it. It was that performance against the team that we're going to have to beat several, several more times. I mean, I think the Mets still have double digit games left against Atlanta in the regular season. And then, hey, you may have to beat him in the postseason. So Castillo's shown he could beat the Braves um, and he could beat him at a at a really tough park to pitch in. And that for me was was the proven, you know, um, performance that I needed to see to say like, all right, let's let's go get this guy. If, if they're going to get a starting pitcher, they may just get bullpen help. I mean, you know, if Jake comes back, <laughs> what we saw out of Scherzer was damn good. The way Walker's pitching, you know, those three plus Bassett very well might be what you're rolling with in October. And I, I think that's a pretty strong uh, postseason rotation. Jacob DeGrom, Max Scherzer, Tywin Walker, Chris Bassett as your one through four. Not too shabby. Yeah, I, I mean, I in April, that. in April, I would have said, you know, probably Cookie is the fourth guy. Take Walker out of that. But, you know, we'll see. Last year, Walker's second half was nowhere near as good as his first half. If he can do it for a full season, then, then that's all I need. Then go fortify the bullpen. And then you get Cookie out of the pen where he'll be thrown a little harder. You know, you get one guy, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself here, and I know that the show, it's about time to wrap it up. But one guy, I've mentioned this before to you, I believe, um, who I think is going to be a huge part of this bullpen in the postseason is Tyler McGill. I think yeah. he's going to be a guy who, when he comes in for one inning in October, is pumping 100. And so I think, you know, I think we saw it. We've seen it with Syndergaard when he had to come out of the pen in the postseason. These guys who throw 97 when they're, you know, starters trying to go five, six, seven innings or whatnot, it's like when they come in for one inning, they're throwing 100, 101. And I think McGill is actually going to be a really effective reliever for this team come the playoffs. So yeah, we, we might we might have our rotation. I don't even know if the Mets are going to make a play for a starter right now. I think DH and bullpen is actually more of a priority at the moment. 
At the moment, I agree. And starters will be interesting because I've always been under the notion, will they go out and go for a full-fledged guy that they've reportedly showed interest in, Castillo, Montas, Mele, or more of a Trevor Williams type, again, a lawn reliever that can eat innings. However, we do have these question marks with the Tyler McGill's of the world. When he returns, what type of impact can he bring in the Mets? Even a guy to a lesser degree in Joey Lucchese, that's another innings eater, a southpaw, that will be back before the season ends. That just gives the Mets more options. So all I hope for the Mets' sake is that with whatever they do, they are not reliant and dependent on guys that are question marks at that juncture by the trade deadline. That is something that they need to make sure that they address full-fledged. you rather have a plethora of options versus thinking you have enough options, and then they fall short with injury, and then you find yourself back in the hole that you've been in throughout the season. So yeah. that is my biggest goal for the Mets, that they make sure that they address even more than maybe they need to. You can never have enough pitching depth. And it, again, it will not hurt at all for the Mets to add to this offense that they, by all means, know definitely can use some help with the home run ball and just gain consistency at that DH slash catcher position. But Joe, you know, we're over an hour into this one. We had a lot of deep dive, especially after not doing a pod after the Rangers series, but I think is now is a great time to wrap things up. So I want to shout out everyone once more that listen to the latest believe in Queens podcast presented by the believe network. Please do not hesitate from smashing that like and subscribe on here on the YouTube channel. Letting us know your thoughts in the comments below and wherever you get your podcast as well. Make sure to rate review all that fun stuff. Greatly appreciate it. Let us know how you feel about the Mets pod so far. Like we said, time and time again, our third co-host will in fact be a former New York Met shortly. So stay tuned for that announcement. It's going to be electric. That side, I thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure to check me out on Twitter at WordyNYM. And Joe, please make sure to let everyone know where they can find you. Yeah, find me on Twitter at the Joe Serralo, on TikTok at the Joe Serralo, and on Instagram at Joe Serralo. And by the time this drops, it's Thursday, which means it is time for my weekly national radio show, Serralo Sports Talk. Find it on Sports Map Radio, syndicated in over 60 markets across the country. My guest today, if you're listening to this, if you're watching this early in the morning, the show's at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I've got Bruce Pearl joining the show, the Auburn men's basketball head coach, reigning SEC coach of the year. That's an interview that you're not going to want to miss. We're all over Baker Mayfield as well in this episode. So, you know, it's Thursday. Make sure you catch Serralo Sports Talk, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, Sports Map Radio. Awesome. I'm, I'm so pumped to check that out, especially the Baker Mayfield talk. That's going to get a little spicy. Looking forward to that one, too. But no less, thank you again, guys, for listening. Let's go Mets, baby, and we will be back for our next, ep- next episode after the Marlins series. Have a good one, guys. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.